All right. Thank you, Amber. <clears throat> well, in case we haven't had the opportunity to meet, uh, my name is John Carroll. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Hope Covenants, and uh, I wanted to start today uh, with a story. Uh, so not long ago, there was a technology startup company that exceptionally cared for its employees. They offered on-site meals, on-site massage, child care, senior care, pet care, auto care, flex time, three-year maternity, paternity, aunt and uncle leave, free snacks, free therapy, a company-issued computer, company-issued car, company-issued condo, even a company-issued spouse if you wanted. They were the best of the best, and they quickly became number one on the Forbes best places to work list. In fact, everybody at Forbes quit to go work there. So it came as a shock when the CFO got his hand caught in the cookie jar. The company culture revered integrity. He was a highly compensated C-level executive, but the money he had embezzled and lost exceeded his net worth on an exponential scale. And this was discovered on a weekend. Social media blew up. The whole world knew. On Monday, the old man called him in to meet with the senior leadership team. People called the CEO the old man behind his back because he was the founder, the owner, and the oldest person in the organization. He was 26 years old. Everybody knew what was coming. Ruin. Disgrace. When he walks into the old man's office, something happens in the mind of the CFO. He has nothing to lose. He goes for broke. He throws the Hail Mary pass. He literally gets down, on his, gets down on his knees, and he asks for mercy. Think of my wife, my poor children. Give me time, he begs. I will pay back what I owe. The other members on the team are amused and disgusted at the same time. For one thing, the debt could not be repaid, not in a million years. For another thing, it was his own fault. Why should he embarrass himself and all of them like this? But if they were surprised by his behavior, that was nothing compared to what they experienced when they looked at the old man. Instead of calling for security, he sat there as if he was really considering this unthinkable request. His face softened. His eyes were full of tears. And then he spoke. He did not give the CFO time to pay back the debt. He canceled the debt altogether. You don't owe a thing, he said. No prison, no disgrace. Go tell your wife and family everything's okay. And then come back and work for me once again. The CFO put the word out on Twitter because this was a big story. He tweeted out a single phrase, forgiven, hashtag grace. You understand, the debt didn't just disappear. Somebody had to absorb it. And that someone was the old man. You cannot believe how captivated everybody was by the story of forgiveness of an unpayable debt. It was unprecedented. It made the rounds on NPR and every major news network. Economist did a cover story on it. Taylor Swift actually wrote a song about it. Tom Cruise tried to buy the movie rights so he could play the old man. But the story was too unbelievable, even for Scientologists. They wouldn't let him do it. But here's the kicker. That was not the end of the story. 
The CFO went back to work, and he was checking out PayPal on company time when he saw a guy in his department owed him $50. This was a low-level guy, data entry, you know, minimum wage, new employee. So the CFO goes down to collect. Pay me what you owe me, he says. The low-level guy explained he didn't have the money on him. He was the sole support for his aging parents. Could he just have until payday? And this is going on at the guy's workspace. And a bunch of employees are watching. They know what's going to happen. They know the CFO is going to show grace. After all, he'd just been saved by somebody else's grace. And not just that. His debt had been unpayable, astronomical. And this time, the amount was way smaller. He had been on the receiving uh, end of the biggest act of grace in history. They knew he would just be waiting for the opportunity to overflow with grace. It would be like a tiny little way of saying thank you for all of the grace that he had received. He could do in a very small way for this man would have been done in an enormous way for him. And they all watched for the grace moment. They know it's coming, but it does not come. His face does not soften. His eyes remain dry. And his heart remains hard. You will rue the day you got behind with me, the CFO said. Pack up your things. You're gone. And he calls security and has the employee escorted out of the building with his personal possessions in a box. Public humiliation. The employees who are witnesses to this scene are stunned. How could somebody who had been forgiven an infinite debt be so incredibly unforgiving about a tiny little debt? How could somebody who had received such massive amounts of mercy refuse to give a tiny bit of mercy to a fellow human being? Word about this got back to the old man. By now, it's apparent the old man does not miss much. So he calls the CFO back into his office. But this time, the meeting was short. This time, there were no surprises. You didn't get it at all, did you? You thought my grace meant I was an incompetent, inattentive pushover who would let you get away with whatever you wanted. You were badly mistaken. You were shown forgiveness, but you would not offer it. You were granted mercy, but you would not bestow it. You were showered with grace, but you would not extend it. You were offered the economy of love, but you have chosen the economy of vengeance. Have it your way. The man was handed over to the court system, and he was tried, convicted, and imprisoned until he should pay back the unpayable debt. And the CEO tweeted out a single phrase, unforgiven, hashtag judgment. By now you might have recognized this is actually a version of a very famous story told by Jesus about forgiveness. And you can find this in Matthew chapter 18. It's not a subtle story, but just in case anybody might miss the meaning of it, Jesus spells it out. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And I want to pause here. This is a story about the human race. Jesus says, there is a God who is lavishly generous and painstakingly just. Human beings have accumulated a mountain of moral debt before God. And you and I add to this 
all the time. Every time you're less than honest. Every time you fudge an expense account. Every time you're unloving to a five-year-old. Every time you shouldn't have made a cutting remark, but you did. Every time that you should have spoken in love, but you did not. Every time you gossiped or were not grateful or closed your eyes to the poor. Every nursed grudge, every selfish act, every self-righteous attitude. Every failure to be generous with the finances that God has blessed you with. Every blind eye turned towards racism. Every moment of spiritual sloth. All of this is adding up to a mountain of moral debt. Every human being is in the same boat. Everyone. And I'm a pastor. I've committed my life to teaching about spiritual formation. And it took me about 60 seconds to come up with this list. You know why? Because I've done all of those. And way more than, of that than I know of. And way more of that in my blindness I don't know of. And then one day at the cross of Jesus, God took pity on me. God had compassion for me. And he canceled my debt. He forgave my sin and set me free. But then it doesn't stop there, friends. We've been talking about the inescapable awkwardness and importance of community for the past several weeks. And we've been thinking about the kind of living that Jesus has in mind for us. Jesus gave us quite a lot of instruction about this. In the most well-known sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. In the middle of it, Jesus has to say something about forgiveness. He says this, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. British novelist and theologian Charles Williams wrote this, No word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as in that clause. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus is so serious about this that he adds a little postscript to the Lord's Prayer. It's like a P.S. Now, people who study these kinds of things say that um, the, the single item that is most likely to be read and remembered in an email is the P.S. It's the most important, most important part of the email. And Jesus gives the world the most prayed prayer in human history for the last 2,000 years, a P.S. And he says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, that may look kind of severe. You might be thinking, God is being way too strict here. Sometimes people will think, God has to forgive me if I ask him. That's his job. And Jesus here is not saying, now, God could forgive you, but he's withholding forgiveness to motivate you to forgive. Jesus is not saying that. What he's doing is he's commenting on the nature of forgiveness and our human condition. You see, there's a vast chasm between wanting to be forgiven Versus wanting to get out of trouble. And a few years ago, a video surfaced on YouTube 
of a little boy who broke the rules by eating cupcakes before dinner. Now, how many of you have that kind of rule in your house? No dessert before dinner. Just a quick show of hands. Not many of you. Okay, you're rule breakers too. Well, this kid gets caught with his hand in the cupcake container. And let's look at the difference between wanting to be forgiven and wanting to get out of trouble. Let's take a look. Okay, but I have to yell at you guys. Okay, what? Okay. Then you're not listening to me. I asked you not to do something. Okay, but I'm asking, I'm letting you know but that you cannot, no, I'm, you're not listening to me. Listen to me now. Listen to me now. No, you're not listening. I said no cupcakes, and you try to get cupcakes, and you try to ask grandma. Didn't you? What's going to bring your butt? You and Kevin don't listen. So I have to give both of you guys pop pals in your butt. No, he's not. I have to. You want? You don't want me to hit Kevin or you don't want me to spank you? Why? Then I have to spank Kevin. He's your little pop-ups, but he doesn't listen. But Linda, honey, honey, look at, look at this. Right now, we can't do anything if we can't get everything out of the wall. We're going to break everything down. I'm not breaking anything down. I'm just letting you know Linda, you cannot it, have it, cupcakes it, for dinner. It, Linda, Linda, like this thing, I never belong to you. Anything, you can't get anything and anything and anything. I'm done arguing with you. Now, clearly, that kid has watched his father talk his way out of trouble one too many times. <laughs> Honey, Linda, listen. And in a moment, we'll see another instance of a child's capacity to mimic his father. His father. But the solution to this kid's problem here is that if he wants to be forgiven and not just avoid trouble, but if he wants to be forgiven, it means he recognizes that he's done something wrong and he wants to be, become the kind of person who wouldn't do that anymore. And in that situation, the little boy doesn't want a forgiver. He wants an enabler. And the same applies to you and me. If I truly want to be forgiven by God, I agree with him that I've done wrong and that I want to become the kind of person who wouldn't do that stuff. Forgiveness is always a gift of grace. Receiving forgiveness usually involves a lot of work. That's repentance. And that, too, is enabled by grace. That, too, is a gift. If I cling to resentment toward other people, grudge-holding, bitterness, retaliation, passive-aggressive behavior, I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to repent. I don't want to become a new creature and live in the reality of the kingdom. 
so God will not force me to. And here's the thing. It is not psychologically possible for us to know God's tender-hearted pity toward us and remain hard-hearted towards others. And this is critically important to understand about the human condition. It is psychologically not possible for us to know God's tender-hearted pity towards us and for us to remain hard-hearted towards others. It's what Dallas Willard would sometimes call the unity of spiritual orientation. In other words, you cannot have one posture towards God and another posture towards people. It's not that you shouldn't. It's that it's impossible because you are one person with one character. And we see this in many statements in the Bible. Things like this. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. We are each a whole being, and my true character pervades everything I do. I saw not long ago, you probably did too, where in one of those cases of sexual assault that had been made public fairly recently, the guilty celebrity's apology was this. He said, I apologize, although I don't remember doing it. That action does not reflect who I am. And I think, but it does. My true character is revealed, not by the values I publicly profess to hold, but by precisely by what I say and by what I do. And the tr- this is the truth about us. And this is the unity of spiritual orientation. And Jesus came into a world that was governed by the law of retaliation. You help me, I'll help you. You punch me, I'll punch you back. That's human nature. That's what we do naturally in the flesh. That's the kingdom of this earth. That's the kingdom of self. But now in the kingdom of God, there's another basis for relating to each other. And the psalmist says this, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And then James writes, The Lord is full of pity and compassion. And then later on, James writes this in the old King James Version. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. And there's a key word in Jesus' story in Matthew 18. He says, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And that's the word pity. We don't use the word pity much anymore. In fact, as I was talking through uh, my sermon with Amber the other day, uh, she wasn't sure I should use the word pity. You know, we use uh, words like mercy. Mercy's okay. Maybe compassion. That's a good word. Not pity. Pity offends my pride. Pity makes us wince. I say things like, I don't want your pity. And the truth is, I'm a pitiable person. If my family's going to love me, it's not going to be on the basis of my strength. They must have pity on me. They must see my neediness and my weakness and be given mercy from God for me. If any of you have read Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, you may know that pity is the key to the story. Early on, the hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, has gotten the ring of power, and now he's invisible. He has to get past Gollum, who used to have the ring, to escape the cave where he's trapped. 
Gollum wants to kill Bilbo, but cannot see him. And Tolkien writes of Bilbo this. He says, he must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. And then something happens. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope. Bilbo has pity for Gollum. Now, he doesn't exactly forgive him. Gollum won't repent, but Bilbo refuses to repay evil with evil. What does he do? He repays evil with good. And much later in the story, Frodo has to deal with Gollum. And Frodo says to the wizard Gandalf, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. And Gandalf says, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. In the end, when Frodo is not strong enough, it is through Gollum that the ring is destroyed. It was pity that saved the world. You see, we all think that we're going to be brilliant and strong and beautiful, but in the end, we are loved and accepted on the basis of pity from God and from others. So we learn to live in forgiveness. On the cross, you see, it was pity that moved the master to pay our debt. On the cross, it was pity that saves the world. Now you might wonder, where can you go to find a group of pitiful sinners who will wrong you and hurt you so that you can practice forgiveness? Well, good news, you're here. We are a pitiful community. And I thought of actually a new liturgy that we could use here at church, you know, where I would say, my pity be upon your pitiful selves. And then you could say, and also with you. It's probably not going to catch on. That's okay. And this is a place where you can be known by God and belong to an awkward and important community and be loved to the people around you. And so we remember, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And Jesus tells us, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now you have some debtors. I know you do. Maybe it's your mom or dad in some awful way. Maybe it's your husband or wife for some terrible behavior. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's somebody at work or at school. That has wounded you. Maybe it's a fellow debtor. Maybe it's somebody in this room. What will you choose? Will you choose grace? This does not mean you excuse or tolerate wrongdoing. It may not even mean reconciling. If somebody sins against you and refuses to acknowledge the truth, refuses to repent, refuses to agree with you that they've done wrong, you may not be able to rebuild the relationship. Full forgiveness involves a restored relationship, but we can start with forgiveness even without that. You give up the right to hurt the other person back. You wish them well before God. And God will help you do this. The stakes are so high 
Years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book called What's So Amazing About Grace? In it, he writes, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George passed a breaking point. He pounded the table in the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. No, no, no. Several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He padded down the hall, stood for a moment outside his son's door, and shivers ran down his flesh. He could not draw a breath. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the argument between his mother and father. I won't take it anymore. I hate you. No, no, no. And George realized that in some awful way, he had just bequeathed his pain and his anger and forgiveness to the next generation. And forgive us our debts, as. It's that little word, as. It happens every day. And that's the story of our pitiless world. But there's another way. A scholar by the name of Walter Wink wrote about two peacemakers who visited with Polish Christians after World War II. And they asked him, and he asked him, would you be willing to meet with some Christians from West Germany? Because they want to ask forgiveness for what Germany did. They want to begin a new relationship. Are you willing to meet with them? Silence. What you are asking is impossible. Every stone of Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood they spilled. We cannot forgive. And they finished the conversation. And they decided to close by saying together the Lord's Prayer. They got to these words. And forgive us our debts as we. Everybody stopped praying. There was silence in the room. They were greatly distressed. One of the Polish Christians said, I can no longer pray this prayer or call myself a Christian if I don't forgive. Humanly speaking, I can't do it, but God can give us the strength. And 18 months later, Polish and German Christians met in Vienna and eventually established a relationship that would last the rest of their lives. I know. I understand forgiving can be complex and deep and that it's a process that takes weeks or months or years and maybe even decades. I know. But I wonder, over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have changed? How many families? How many friendships? How many churches? How many lives, if when the Lord's Prayer was prayed, we stopped at that line and forgive us our debts as we, we just stop there and let the Holy Spirit work and think about that one little word, as. I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together now, except we're going to do it a little different. Normally, we use the word trespass, as in, as we forgive those who trespass against us. But today, we're going to say the version that uses the word debtors. 
And since we don't normally use this, I'm going to put this on the screen so that you can just focus on the words. And as we say those words, as we forgive our debtors, I'm going to ask us to stop with that word debtors and just ask God to speak to us right in the moment. Where is forgiveness needed? Where is the grudge? Where is the pity? Where is the debt? And afterwards, we're going to have a moment of silence. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together and ask God to speak now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen. It's funny how God works. I planned to give this talk on forgiveness nearly two months ago. And forgiveness made the news in a really powerful way this week. Jesus had a postscript, a P.S., after the Lord's Prayer about forgiveness. So this sermon has a P.S. about forgiveness too. On September 6, 2018, an off-duty Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, mistakenly entered the apartment of 26-year-old Botham Jean. Thinking that Botham was in her apartment, Amber Geiger shot and killed him. And the story sent shockwaves through the nation and sparked outrage and debate amongst millions of people. During the trial earlier this week, the prosecution argued for 99 years in prison. And when the verdict came in, Geiger got only 10. Botham's family was shocked and angry at what they felt was an extremely light sentence, an act of injustice. No one could have predicted what would come next. Botham's 18-year-old brother, Brant, had some final words for Geiger. You know, Dallas Willard defined love as to will the good of another person. Love is to will the good of another person. Watch this video and think about what it looks like in your life to will the good of another person. Even someone who has hurt you and what radical forgiveness looks like. I don't want to. Say twice or for the hundredth time. What you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just. I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt 
all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible. Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Last week, I invited you to practice an expression of the be love part of our vision, to do something radical for Jesus. In light of this radical act of forgiveness, perhaps the most radical thing you can do, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, is forgive somebody who has wounded you. 
who doesn't deserve your forgiveness. And you can do that. And you don't do that by yourself. Just ask God for help. And you will not be alone. Let's pray. Oh God, when tragedy and injustice and heartbreak intersect our lives, we often wonder things like why? And what good could possibly come of this? There are times when we never get an answer. And then there are moments when your love and your mercy and your pity and forgiveness are crystal clear. Thank you for speaking to us and redeeming this situation. May we, want, may we be people who want to acknowledge when we've done wrong and not merely try to wiggle our way out of trouble. May we practice radical forgiveness all the days of our lives as we work to follow you who loves us so deeply. Amen.